This episode is sponsored by Robin. Do you think being an orthopedic surgeon has gotten more risky? It could be because of anything, from the economy to compliance concerns. If your answer is yes, you're not alone. According to a recent survey from Robin Healthcare, nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. It's no wonder, then, that a majority of doctors also say they're documenting more in their medical notes to protect themselves against malpractice claims, audits, and insurance denials. If that's what you're doing, you need to check out Robin. Robin does all the documentation for your patient visits and delivers notes and codes that help protect your practice. To discover how, visit robin.co slash orthobullets. That's robin.co slash orthobullets. This episode of the Orthobullets podcast will go over the topic of cauda equina syndrome from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Cauda equina syndrome is caused by severe compression of the nerve roots in the thecal sac of the lumbar spine, most commonly due to an acute lumbar disc herniation. Early diagnosis is critical and is made clinically by characteristic symptoms of saddle-like paresthesias combined with acute back and leg pain. Urgent MRI is performed to confirm the cause. Treatment is prompt surgical decompression that should preferably be performed within 24 hours and absolutely within 48 hours. Now let's get into the episode. Starting with etiology, as far as epidemiology, the incidence of cauda equina syndrome is rare, with an annual incidence between 1.5 to 3.4 cases per million. There is an estimated prevalence of approximately 1 in 65,000 and about 1,000 new cases per year in the U.S. Cauda equina syndrome occurs with approximately 3% of all lumbar disc herniations. In terms of demographics, cauda equina syndrome is more common in males and typically occurs in the fourth decade of life, that is the 30s, and this is the most common age group. In terms of location of cauda equina syndrome, this most commonly occurs at the L4-5 level. Moving on to pathophysiology, the pathoanatomy involves a massive space-occupying lesion within the lumbosacral canal. This herniation is the most common. The pathoanatomy may also involve a spinal epidural hematoma, which may be spontaneous with aggressive DVT prophylaxis, it can occur after neuraxial anesthesia, which is epidural, and can occur in the postoperative period with early DVT prophylaxis. The pathoanatomy can also involve a spinal cord tumor, such as a myxopapillary ependymoma, schwannoma, and spinal meningioma. Other examples of pathoanatomy that may lead to cardioquina syndrome include a synovial facet cyst, spinal epidural abscess, trauma, such as retropulsion of a fracture fragment, as well as dislocation or collapse, and this can be seen in lumbar burst fractures, and another potential etiology of cardioquina syndrome is developmental spondylolisthesis. The pathobiology of cardioquina syndrome involves mechanical compression that decreases nutrient delivery to the nerve root. This results in decreased blood flow and decreased CSF diffusion. The pathobiology may also be secondary to intraneural compartment syndrome, in which venous congestion and intraneural edema from hypoperfusion injury further decreases arterial perfusion pressures and nerve root ischemia follows. Associated orthopedic conditions with cardioquina syndrome can include conus medullaris syndrome, lumbar disc herniation, spinal cord tumors, spondylolisthesis, lumbar burst fractures, sacral fractures, and epidural hematoma. Medical conditions can include deep vein thrombosis or DVT, which is a well-known complication after spinal trauma or spine surgery. Often DVT prophylaxis is held out of concern for epidural hematoma. Antiplatelet medications can be safely resumed approximately 48 to 72 hours post-op from spinal procedures. Moving on to prognosis, let's talk about natural history and prognostic variables. 
So in terms of the natural history of Cauda Equina syndrome, delays in diagnosis and management can lead to devastating lifelong impairment, specifically progressive weakness of the lower extremities without surgery and progressive loss of bowel and bladder function without surgery. Note that even with early surgery, neurologic recovery is variable. In terms of prognostic variables, the presence of saddle anesthesia or bladder dysfunction is associated with worse outcomes. And it's important to know that surgical decompression after 48 hours is also associated with worse outcomes. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the spinal cord and bladder. So in terms of the spinal cord, the conus medullaris is a tapered terminal end of the spinal cord and terminates at T12 or the L1 vertebral body. The phallum terminale is a non-neural fibrous extension of the conus medullaris that attaches to the coccyx. Cauda equina, which is Latin for horse's tail, is a collection of L1 to S5 peripheral nerves within the lumbar canal. Compression is considered to cause lower motor neuron lesions. Know that the roots are only covered with endoneurium and therefore are sensitive to compression. Moving on to the bladder, this receives innervation from the parasympathetic nervous system, specifically the pelvic splanchnic nerves and the inferior hypogastric plexus, as well as the sympathetic plexus from the hypogastric plexus. So in terms of parasympathetic nervous system innervation of the bladder, this promotes urination through contraction of the detrusor urinary muscles and relaxation of the internal sphincter. The sympathetic plexus innervation of the bladder promotes urinary retention through relaxation of the detrusor urinary muscles and contraction of the internal sphincter. Know that the external sphincter of the bladder is controlled by the pudendal nerve, and this is responsible for voluntary control. Lower motor neuron lesions of the cauda equina will interrupt the nerves forming the bladder reflex arcs. These patients are unable to sense bladder filling and are unable to initiate appropriate muscle contraction and relaxation. As far as classification for cauda equina syndrome, one classification to know is the bladder function classification, which is divided into incomplete and complete. Incomplete refers to loss of urgency or decreased urinary sensation but no incontinence or retention. Complete refers to clear urinary and or bowel retention or incontinence. Moving on to the presentation of cauda equina syndrome, in terms of history, these patients might have a history of lifting a heavy object with the lumbar spine in the flex position. Be sure to ask about the use of anticoagulation, which can cause a hematoma, and invasive procedures as well as IV drug use, which can cause an infection leading to cauda equina syndrome. Common symptoms include back pain, which is the most common and may be the initial presenting symptom alone. You can have unilateral or bilateral leg pain, which is the second most common symptom. Saddle anesthesia, while less common, is more specific for cauda equina syndrome and if present should initiate a surgery emergency protocol. Bladder dysfunction is another common symptom where disruption of the bladder contraction and sensation leads to urinary retention and eventually to overflow incontinence. It's important to document the presence of bladder dysfunction prior to surgery. Other common symptoms include unilateral or bilateral sensory changes in the legs as well as unilateral or bilateral motor weakness in the legs. Rare symptoms can include sexual dysfunction, specifically impotence in men, as well as bowel dysfunction. On physical exam, inspection may reveal a patient in distress due to low back pain, leg pain, and weakness. As far as palpation, lower back pain slash tenderness is not a distinguishing feature. However, palpation of the bladder may reveal urinary retention. Neurologic exam should assess for motor, sensory, and reflexes. Motor exam may reveal bilateral or unilateral lower extremity weakness, as well as decreased rectal tone on voluntary contracture. Sensory exam may reveal reduced or absent sensation to pinprick in the perianal region, which is the S2 to S4 dermatomes, the perineum, and posterior thigh. Note that sensory exam must distinguish between pinprick and light touch sensation. 
Another aspect of the sensory exam includes bilateral or unilateral lower extremity sensory disturbances. As far as testing reflexes, these patients may have decreased or absent lower extremity reflexes. Provocative tests may reveal diminished or absent bulbocavernosis reflexes, as well as diminished or absent anal wink test. This is a reflex contraction of the external anal sphincter upon pinprick stimulation of the skin around the anus. Moving on to imaging, as far as indications for radiographs, if there's a high suspicion of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome, the study of choice is MRI. However, you can obtain radiographs, but initiate the process of obtaining an MRI immediately. Recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a lateral. Findings are usually normal in the setting of the most common cause of lumbar disc herniation. However, you may see other causes of spinal canal stenosis, such as burst fractures, or high-grade developmental spondylolisthesis with an intact lamina. An MRI, again, is the study of choice to evaluate neurologic compression. This must be performed emergently if cauda aquinas syndrome is suspected. Ideally, you will obtain this within one to two hours of presentation to the ER. Findings often reveal large central disc herniations with complete spinal canal obliteration. Findings can also include presence of spinal stenosis, epidural hematoma, and epidural abscess. CT myelography is indicated as the study of choice if the patient is unable to undergo an MRI, for example in the setting of a pacemaker or MRI-incompatible implants. As far as findings, sagittal and axial reconstructions can reveal a space-occupying lesion, and you may also find partial or complete blockage of contrast. As far as other studies to obtain in the setting of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome, Laboratory studies should include a CBC, ESR, and CRP, especially if there's concern for infectious etiology, like an epidural abscess. Urodynamic studies can also be obtained, where preoperative post-void residual volumes, or PVR, are recommended to be obtained prior to decompression, but should not at all delay decompression. A normal post-void residual volume is less than 50 to 100 milliliters. PVR values of less than 200 milliliters have a 97% negative predictive value for Cauda-Aquinas syndrome. Urodynamic studies also includes a postoperative postvoid residual volume, which assesses for return of bladder function. As far as the diagnosis, the key differential diagnosis for Cauda-Aquinas syndrome includes conus medullaris syndrome, spinal cord infarct, and myelopathy. A diagnosis of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome is made by history, symptoms, and physical exam. MRI imaging confirms the cause of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome and is critical for surgical planning. Treatment of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome is always operative and it requires an emergent surgical decompression. Indications include clinical symptoms of Cauda-Aquinas syndrome with imaging to support the diagnosis. As far as timing, this should be as soon as safely possible, but within 24 hours is preferable. However, within 48 hours is considered acceptable standard of care. Techniques include a microdiscectomy, which involves a unilateral laminotomy, medial facetectomy, and discectomy, a laminectomy, which involves a bilateral laminectomy and medial facetectomy, and laminectomy with fusion, which is rarely indicated. In terms of outcomes, studies have shown improved outcomes in bowel and bladder function and resolution of motor and sensory deficits when decompression is performed within 48 hours of the onset of symptoms. Know, however, that residual bladder deficits may persist despite successful decompression. Motor recovery may continue up to one year post-op. Bladder function may continue to improve up to 16 months post-op. There have been no comparison studies between microdiscectomy alone and wide decompression combined with microdiscectomy. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with a microdiscectomy that involves a unilateral laminotomy, medial facetectomy, and discectomy, the indications is a massive soft disc herniation in a younger patient with minimal degenerative changes. The approach involves a 2-centimeter midline or slightly paramedian incision made on one side of the pathology. 
You will then expose the lamina from the spinous process to the facet joint. Next, a 5 to 10 millimeter laminotomy is made over the area of disc herniation. As far as the medial facetectomy, a minimal facetectomy is made with a kerosene. Next, with respect to the ligamentum flavum window, a cleft in the ligamentum flavum is made and the lateral section is removed. Next, you will perform an annulotomy, which will involve dural retraction and removal of the offending disc material. This should be done with a micropituitary rongeur, then irrigation through a metal cannula, and ensure the disc material is thoroughly removed. Moving on to a laminectomy, which involves a bilateral laminectomy and medial facetectomy, this is indicated in an older patient with degenerative changes, including a hypertrophic ligamentum flavum and lateral recess stenosis. The approach includes preservation of the spinous processes and posterior ligamentous complex. This can be performed with a posterior ligamentous complex preserving undercutting approach or spinous process resection. This comes with the risk of incomplete decompression. In terms of spinous process and posterior ligamentous complex resection, this is the traditional method of resection of the spinous process with complete laminectomy that may be preferred to ensure complete decompression. This technique involves a bilateral laminectomy, bilateral ligamentum flavum resection, and bilateral medial facetectomy and unilateral discectomy. The advantages of this option is a wide laminectomy is performed, which decreases the amount of dural retraction, there is a greater degree of decompression, and better visualization of the dura. The advantage is also removal of the offending disc fragment. Finally, moving on to laminectomy and fusion, this is indicated in high-grade spondylolisthesis, as well as insidious type cardioquina syndrome in the context of degenerative spondylolisthesis. Now, let's end this review session talking about some complications. Non-operative complications include sexual dysfunction, urinary dysfunction, chronic pain, and persistent leg weakness. Risk factors for sexual dysfunction include delay in surgical decompression. As far as prognosis, recovery may be prolonged over several years, and there is a worse prognosis for recovery in older patients. Risk factors for urinary dysfunction includes delay in surgical decompression, and as far as treatment, these patients may require permanent catheterization. Operative complications can include dural tear, iatrogenic segmental instability, epidural fibrosis or scarring, wound infection, and vascular injury. As far as the incidence of dural tears, these occur in 1-4% to of cases. Treatment involves primary repair of the dura with or without dural graft or fat grafting. This prevents a pseudomeningocele and durocutaneous fistula sequelae. These patients will be prescribed post-operative bed rest for 4-7 to seven days, they may require a lumbar drain, and know that there is no difference in outcomes if adequately treated. Moving on to iatrogenic segmental instability, this occurs with overly aggressive medial facetectomy. Epidural fibrosis or scarring is a cause of postoperative back and leg pain and presents about three months post-op. In terms of treatment, these patients respond poorly to re-exploration, and you should evaluate with a gadolinium-enhanced MRI, which differentiates from recurrent herniated nucleus pulposus. Wound infection has an incidence of approximately 1% of cases. Know that there is an increased risk with diabetics. Finally, vascular injury is a rare complication. However, risk factors include perforation of the anterior longitudinal ligament with curettes during disc removal. As far as treatment, this requires immediate resuscitation and intraoperative vascular consultation. There is a mortality of up to 50%. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 55-year-old female with a long-standing history of back pain presents to the emergency department reporting a one-day history of worsening pain. She denies fever, night sweats, and cannot recall a traumatic episode. She presents with symptoms of radiculopathy in her lower extremities. 
On exam, she has generalized lower extremity numbness and weakness and a decrease in perianal sensation. What is the next most appropriate step in management? And the choices are 1. Discharge with anti-inflammatory medication and follow-up in one week. 2. Immediate CT myelography. 3. Immediate MRI of the lumbar spine. 4. Lab tests like CBC, ESR, and CRP. And 5. Radiographs of the lumbar spine. The correct answer to this question is 3. Immediate MRI of the lumbar spine. So this patient exhibits early symptoms of cauda equina syndrome, and MRI of the lumbar spine is the next most appropriate step in management. To quickly review, cauda equina syndrome is a relatively uncommon condition typically associated with a large space-occupying lesion within the canal of the lumbosacral spine. Early diagnosis is often challenging because the initial signs and symptoms frequently are subtle. Classically, the syndrome includes urinary retention, saddle anesthesia of the perineum, bilateral lower extremity pain, numbness, and weakness. MRI is the study of choice to evaluate neurologic compression. Urgent surgical decompression is recommended within 48 hours. Spectre et al. reviewed cauda equina syndrome and report that history of previous back pain in patients with insidious onset may contribute to a relative delay in diagnosis because of a tendency of the patient and the physician to minimize the new symptoms. They recommend a thorough physical examination of the sacral nerve roots to aid in diagnosis. Patients may have preserved sensation to pressure and light touch, but decreased sensation to pinprick, so this distinction must be made in order to make the correct diagnosis. MRI is the preferred imaging modality for diagnosis. McCarthy et al. evaluated a retrospective cohort of 42 patients with cauda equina syndrome and found radiculopathy to be the most common presenting symptom. Presenting symptoms were in decreasing frequency, radiculopathy in 90%, back pain in 83%, urinary retention in 60%, and urinary incontinence in 55%. Objective findings were in decreasing frequency, reduced perianal sensation in 76%, sensory deficit in the leg in 62%, absent ankle jerk in 62%, leg weakness in 55%, and reduced rectal tone in 50%. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, discharge is not appropriate as this patient has early symptoms of cauda equina syndrome, which will need urgent surgical decompression. Answer 2, CT myelography is only indicated in patients who cannot obtain an MRI, such as patients with cardiac pacemakers. Answer 3, laboratory testing is not appropriate in this scenario as the patient is not exhibiting signs of infection such as fevers, chills, or night sweats. And finally, answer five, radiographs of the lumbar spine would not aid in the diagnosis of cauda equina syndrome. That's all for this review about cauda equina syndrome. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.